is uh, This is Joe Cole. This is Ruben Loftus Cheek, and you're listening to the London, the London is Blue, Blue podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome back to episode eight of the Tinker Men podcast. I have finally, after eight episodes, been able to get the correct numbering right. I'm finally up to date with the numbering system. Uh, as usual, part of the London is Blue network, uh, coming out probably every four to six weeks at the moment, probably ramping that up in the summer, given that there's probably going to be a fair bit for us to talk about, I would imagine. Um, once again, I am joined by my illustrious co-host, Yassin McLean, as we prepare to dig into a multitude of Chelsea topics throughout the course of this episode. I think from our perspective, this has been probably one of the more interesting periods in, in sort of the, the club from a, from a tactical perspective, performance level standpoint, um, certainly trying some, some very... Uh, I think interesting tactics when it comes to the, the way that players are being deployed, the way that personnel are being used, um, and some very, very big gaps in terms of the the output of, of the team. Uh, I'm not going to touch on, on the sort of disaster class against Brentford in, in, in great detail, mainly because I think, as we saw with, with West Brom last season, kind of a one-off, kind of an atrocity, kind of a game that maybe doesn't necessarily need explaining or is that happy to, to dig into. Um, but from there, yes, we've, we've certainly seen some, some interesting tactical permutations and, and looking forward to discussing that over the course of this episode. Yes, how's it going, mate? How are you enjoying the uh, the NBA playoffs, first and foremost? And, and yeah, what's, what's sort of your, let's say your, your initial hot take on, on how things have gone over the past couple of weeks for, for Chelsea as well? Yeah, I'm all good. Um, good to be back recording. And like you said, we've got a lot of Obviously, high-profile games to get stuck into, really interesting ones as well. Um, yeah, I am really in NBA mode. Um, and after, <laughs> after after my Boston Celtics winning at the buzzer in game one, um, I'm, I'm amped, I'm good, I'm feeling good. So, yeah, so it's it's nice to get into the football a little bit as well and, and um, come away from the time zone struggles that I have of keeping up with something that happens in the middle of the night. Um, yeah, I guess my hot take was, was maybe not a hot take, but it's like you said, I think the Brentford thing... Um, a lot of discourse afterwards was, ah, look what happens when you play a back four. And it's just like, yeah, well, I mean, we did play a back four, but I, they, they're a very good team on the counter. They hit us on the counter. They hit us from set pieces. Um, but then we'd kept, I think, three clean sheets, four clean sheets in a row with a back four prior to that. Um, yeah. Against Spurs, against um, Newcastle, against Palace, conceded very, very late against Brighton. Um, so... So yes, I don't. I think that maybe was uh, pouring cold water on a hot take, I guess, if anything. But he does seem to have, since Brentford, gone very much back to the, a kind of a three, four, three. Definitely back three, back five. Um, we'll talk about how he's tweaked that, especially with the Southampton and Madrid games, because the midfield does look very different. I know you touched on it in one of the reaction posts to Southampton and stuff. Um, but yeah, I think I think it makes sense to kind of touch on to start what we almost ended on last episode, which is the continued Ruben Tada. Um, yeah. And it's, we have this bad knack of talking, we've done it now a few times, we talked about Ruben just before Ruben sort of taking centre stage again. And we talked about Lukaku a couple of months before Lukaku took centre stage again and stuff. So I think it is worth going over because so much seems to have, it feels different about Ruben. And, and obviously this is in the light of Tuchel talking publicly pre-Palace after relying on him in the right wing back role against Southampton and Madrid away um, and I think the quote that you sort of put on our notes here that he hid his talent and his potential for a long time um, is is really interesting and he mentioned about him, have, him not having confidence he mentioned about he's not overconfidence if anything it's the opposite and I think that can happen when you have his injury history in particular trust in your body and 
and really pushing yourself to your limits. That's interesting. And he does strike you as a player that must dominate in training all the time. Um, and yeah, I just, I, he had some humour with it as well. I really do love hearing Tuchel talk. Even today's press conference, there was a load of interesting stuff we'll maybe get to at the very end. Um, he talks with a lot of humour. He said it's not good, it's not enough to just be really good looking like Ruben is. Like <laughs> he, has to, he has to put the consistency in. Yeah. Um, and I mean, with his, I, I would argue, match winning performance, you could argue against Palace. Um it was obviously using the media very well. So I, I guess it, we touched on him a bit, but how have you, do you think he has levels to go, I guess is my question with Ruben. Before we get into the ins and outs of tactics and stuff, I know he's a player that you and me have liked for years, you in particular. Do you think he still has levels to go? Um, do you think he kind of is what he is now and he's a really, really good, cool, interesting squad rotation piece? I know you mentioned that he, on the last episode, he's not someone you're going to build around as a six necessarily. Um, but do you think he does have, still have levels to go? And do you think that Tuchel is going to be successful in, in getting those levels out of it? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question, Yaz. And I've actually chucked in the notes here that whenever I, I get back involved with, with Loftus-Cheek, thinking about his, his future at Chelsea, it's the quotation from The Godfather 3. It's the one that appears in The Sopranos and, and memes all the time. You know, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. Um, so I think th this probably, I think maybe reflects the way that I am looking at how sort of world football is heading in terms of sort of multifaceted or multidimensional players who can do lots of different things in lots of different areas of the pitch. Uh, the game is becoming perhaps less rigidly structured and, and positioned in terms of how players are, are treated. You know, you don't have to look at just Chelsea in terms of guys like Rhys James, but you know, people like Trent Alexander-Arnold, there are numerous examples of players who... Um, you know, kind of feature and, and do fantastic pieces of work in, in a variety of positions. Um, I think that I'm looking at now and there were some some comments from him which I think were press and maybe not necessarily in the in sort of the video stuff that I'd seen. Um, but Ruben was sort of talking about, you know, his game was based on power and, and he kind of lose that power with the injuries that he's had. You know, he said that confidence comes from playing a lot, being exposed to it every week. You get confidence and it becomes second nature to do things you do on the pitch. If you don't have confidence, you second guess yourself and it becomes a lot of overthinking on the pitch. That's what I've had for a lot of my career. I haven't been confident in myself because of my body and not playing a lot. So it's hard to then just come in and dazzle. That's the fight I've had all my life. And I think that kind of comment, that sort of, I suppose, almost a, a real kind of introspection on his own career from, from you know, a, a, I think an intelligent and, and certainly an intelligent footballer, um, is probably where I stand in him now. I th you know, if, if we are going to see, particularly with Thomas Tuchel, the kind of, of manager, the kind of coach that can not only just improve players, but give them that confidence, that self-belief to, to maybe reach levels that they hadn't necessarily thought that they could. If we could see that, and we're starting to see, and I've, I've heard even, I think Mason Mount and others were commenting on, on Loftus-Cheek after the game about how his sort of physical quality is is finally recovering. And it's almost been, what, two, three years since that, since that injury. Um, if we're going to start seeing this version of Ruben, you know, again, he may not be a, a de facto starter, but... You know, I think as you and I have, have said numerous times this season, this isn't just about having a starting eleven now. You've got to have a squad of players that are all capable of coming in, playing the system, playing, you know, sort of understanding the, the game model, the requirements of, of different roles and actually coming in and, and putting in performances. And, you know, if he is a sort of sixth man kind in that sort of midfield rotation, we are going to talk about the midfield in quite a bit of detail later. So we'll leave some of that for there. But, you know, if you're looking again, that kind of modern skill set I'm talking about now, there are lots of box to box E for one of a better term 
kind of players, um, you know, sort of surfacing in, in terms of the ability that, you know, they're, they're good defensively, they're good in the middle, they can carry the ball potentially, or, or they're, they're excellent at passing, but they have a really uh, significantly strong uh, sort of ball progressive trait, Rubens being his dribbling and obviously his, his pace and his power when he carries. Um, even, you know, I thought he played a fantastic ball for a little outside of the foot pass to Timo Werner as well during the game. So, you know, some of that stuff that we'd maybe seen a bit under Starry that I think you and I questioned whether that was still there, that decision-making, that execution, the final third. Again, I'm not expecting him to turn into sort of prime Zinedine Zidane with, a, with sort of their creative playmaking. But having that in your locker with the size that he's got, with that ability to really kind of brush through and, 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 and kind of carry the ball past a lot of, a lot of Palace's midfielders, might have been interesting if Conor Gallagher was playing to see how that physical battle would have gone. But um, yeah, I think I think he's now put himself in an interesting position for the rest of the season. Yeah, so I'll put it that way um, because it just feels like to me, you know, Tuchel, I think, likes him. And if I, I think when Tuchel likes you and he's willing to invest time in you, I think he's willing to figure out ways to, to use him, um, which I, I suppose kind of brings me on to my first real question to you. And we can start looking, looking at this in sort of chronological order here. But this kind of weird wing back, I think I'm calling it a shuttler back or shuttle back, like a hybrid of, it's almost like a right-sided guy on a diamond midfield and a wing back in a fullback position. Being able to kind of play that versus, you know, sort of the more traditional sort of central midfield, quite an aggressive central midfield position against Palace. Where where do you think kind of the, I suppose the, the, the thought process from Tuchel has come in in terms of trying to figure out how to utilise him. But, but what what has this role, this kind of right wing back hybrid midfield role kind of been to you? And what's been sort of the progression of that for, for Ruben under Tuchel? I think you you touched on it a little bit there. With He's so versatile, right? He's able to drive. He's able to uh, win duels. He's able to do things in tight spaces. He's able to get up and down the pitch. It's funny when he, I can't remember what game it was he first played right wing back but he did for I think 45 minutes um, earlier in the season it's totally lost me who it was against but by the end of the game he looked knackered um, and even even against Madrid away he looked he looked pretty blowing by the end of it um, and it, it, with his size and stuff it's not something which I, I think was totally natural to him but with his qualities he was he was able to do it just a quick one though before before that is I think you with with Ruben, we don't really know what player he is yet. I think, and I don't think too. I think he does as well. I think exactly. That's, yeah. I don't think he does, and I think maybe that was part of the thinking with Tuchel trying him out there. He's already tried him as the sweeper in the three, and you know he's tried him as a six, and we've seen him play on the left of a three under Sari and really link up well with the left winger and stuff. Just something I forgot to mention at the start, and I think this is why we don't know what the final version of Ruben is and the fully polished version and everything like that. And I think people should keep this in mind when we do talk about Ruben and the injuries and stuff. He's 26 now. He's played in total 2,800 minutes for Chelsea. In in his career in the Premier League, he's only played 6,500 minutes, roughly, right? Mason Mount's 23, three years younger. And Mason Mount for Chelsea has already played a thousand minutes more for Chelsea in his three seasons. Um, and in terms of top flight professional football, um, Mason Mount's played, if you include his Dutch league season and his championship season, he's played another 5,000 on top of that. Then you compare Ruben to, to Kovacic, who's, who's two years older. Um, Kovacic has already played more minutes for Chelsea than Ruben has top flight football. <laughs> so so it, it it shows you just that there's this player who has all these skills but he, like he said with his injury stuff and like Tuchel might be thinking he's just never had the rhythm and the opportunities to 
to know the pictures and to know the situations. If, like we talked on the last episode about him freezing on the edge of the box a little bit and not really having a patented... Yeah. De Bruyne knows what shot he wants to look for and and, and good strikers know what finish is their patented finish and stuff. And he, he just seems a bit uh, unsure of that. So I think the right wing back stuff with those minutes in mind and with, with his lack of identity is just a good way to get a good all-round player on the pitch. Um in, in a role where maybe that could be an advantage. Maybe he's just able to do a little bit of everything, jack of all trades, master of none, I guess. Um, but I think to start to talk about that that role particularly, I think you have to go back to the first leg against Madrid. Um, and, and I think Tuchel mentioned it. I don't know how much detail you want to talk about that first leg in particular, but Tuchel mentioned that the counter-pressing wasn't great. I think that the right wing-back having a midfielder out there, right wing-back had the counter-pressing in mind. Um Madrid in that first leg found it way too easy for Modric and Kroos in particular to switch the play. Um, Chelsea were really, really trying to squeeze Madrid on one side of the pitch and Kante and Jorginho would load up on the ball side, um, often on the right, the, the left, their right side, and it was just way too easy to find Kroos out. And then there was a massive gap in between Kante and Reese James and at right wing back which exposed Christensen in a, in a 1v1 matchup he was never going to win in that first leg. And I think mm. that was a lot of the thinking behind getting someone like Ruben in that kind of Shuttler um, right wing back role where he could come in when we just lost it, he could come in and plug that midfield. When we had it, he could go inside and really dominate and overload the build up in there and create a box or a diamond for us to play for in the middle. Um as well as that engine and that size and that athleticism we've talked about in terms of he can just get up and down the line as well and, and be a real threat there. Um, so I, I don't know how much you want really to... Really quick question here. Yeah. Yes, I think, yeah, you know, um, I don't think many people will understand the concept of why having a box structure in midfield is important or why, you know, if you're playing, let's say like you're playing with a flat pivot or a double six, as Tuka would call it, why it's important to try and create those kind of numerical overloads or in defensive phases... Uh, from kind of various parts of the pitch, or so whether that's a centre back stepping up, or one of the wing backs filtering in, like what, what, why, why the box, and why is it important to to try and create that sort of numerical superiority in there? Well, I think in possession is is an obvious one. You have more numbers, more angles, yeah. more options, right? Um, and I think we don't have the players like a Modric or a Kroos who they can just they get the ball and they can put it anywhere they want, as yeah, we heartbreakingly yeah. saw with uh, Modric <laughs> in our second leg. I, I just don't think we have players with a good passing range there. I think Mason yeah. Mount has a decent one. Jorginho, I think, is very good at short passes, not great with long ones. Uh, and Kante and Kovacic are very much runners. Um, and so I think we need that structure. I think we need those bodies close together so that we can play short through 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 um, teams because we don't just really have that, that long passing range in our team. I think Rudiger comes inside on his right and switches it admirably and stuff like that. But it... Often when Rudiger's doing that, it looks more like a, a frustration at not being able to build something more sustainable. Um, so firstly, in possession, it's just having the numbers and having more angles yeah. and being able to pull someone out of position and, and, and everything like that. Like, But also it's when you lose it is having those bodies already there, already in central areas that you can immediately go and 
um, and and just slow the other team down and get to them quicker. If, if you're really, really spread out, as a lot of teams like to be when they have the ball, and then you lose it, let's say you're really spread out, the wingers are high and wide, the fullbacks are high and wide, and midfield is spread out, and then Kai Havertz loses it, well, then you've got a lot of gaps there immediately that the other team can just get through. So it's, it's partly on the ball, more options, more numbers, more... Uh, especially for a team like ours, opportunity to play a lot of short passes because we don't really have the means to do really good long ones. Um, yeah. But then it's when you lose it as well as having the bodies there. And I think we're going to touch on that a little bit. I think that was one of the things, counter-pressing is what Tuchel highlighted as an issue with that first leg. I think it was more than just that. I think it might be the first big game that Tuchel got wrong for me as a fan. Um, but... It's definitely something that is night and day after that first leg in the three games we've seen since with Ruben in that role um, against Southampton and Madrid the second leg and also just generally against Palace in the second half when he yeah. came on. What was the the main, I, I know sort of looking at for a single difference here, but what, what were kind of the material things that were different between the, the Real Madrid game and, and, the, Palace, uh, sorry, and the, the Southampton game where Ruben came in and started as a wing back? And... I know that this is something you've touched on quite regularly on here, but I think it's worth making sort of the point again in terms of, of how maybe not having the most dynamic set of wingbacks from Reese and, and Chilwell aren't there, how that can obviously affect ball speed, how it can affect how quickly Chelsea progress. And I suppose also the quality that we have in wide areas. So how much of that is, is a nod that, that Ruben is maybe a little bit more technically uh, gifted than, than Aspelicueta or, or another option that we have at the moment? And how much of that do you think was, as you say, again, almost preparing for that that Madrid uh, second leg with a view to using Ruben in this kind of hybrid role? Yeah, massively. I think I think Tuchel might have galaxy brained it a little bit in that Cesar is also already quite limited on the right hand side in terms of he doesn't have the burst, he doesn't have the speed, he doesn't have the dribbling ability, he doesn't really have a range of pass. So then to put him on the left, I think backfired massively I, I I get I got the reasoning in a way in that you might want to lock that down that side but what I found a bit strange was that Vinicius is nominally on the left for Madrid so I felt the threat was very much on the opposite side um, and if you compare the first and second legs Valverde rarely got forward in the second leg because he had so much more to think about with Alonso being as high and as much of a threat as he was I think um, Aspi being on the left as you just mentioned perfectly, the technical deficiencies anyway, to then put him on the wrong side where he has to constantly come in and wasn't able to really overlap in any meaningful way, I think invited a lot of pressure down that side. And that's where they built a lot of their, their attacks to then switch out to Vinicius, who who had mm. Christensen 1v1. Um, so I think that that was a real a real problem. And then, yeah, I think it, it's, it, it's again, in terms of moving forward with Ruben in the role on the opposite side, it's... It's, it's one thing technically to be a 1v1 player down the wing, but we benefited so much from him coming inside and being an extra midfielder. Yeah. And Cesar just can't do that. He just not... It's, it's, I don't think people appreciate how hard it is for players who have mainly spent their whole career facing one way, especially wide players who've spent their whole career just going up and down um, compared to coming into the middle where you have to see 360 degrees, all angles, nowhere pressure's coming from your left shoulder, your right shoulder, right up your back, um, or, or chasing you back. If you've passed the press, then the forwards might come and, and, and harass you a little bit. There's just so many more decisions to make, and it's such a higher level of technical difficulty, difficulty to contribute in the middle um, that I thought it was, it was just inspired and really good to have Ruben there. Um, 
to come in and do so. And and it was interesting watching it, especially against Southampton, as almost a little warm up for um, that Madrid second leg. You could kind of see almost like the exact in- extra instructions that he had. It was it was when Mendy had it, and we were building with that three. Then he came and created that box. But then when it was on the left, he kind of did the opposite of that. He opened the pitch up and stayed really wide. Um, when he noticed Kai drive out to the or drift out to the right wing, which he did plenty of times in both second leg and Southampton, then that was his opportunity to go and be a, a Mason Mount esque runner inside or drive with the ball inside. Um, so, so it was it was a really nice balance of coming in and adding something, some extra structure centrally, some extra support centrally, and being able to isolate yourself when the ball was on the left for a big switch and just be able to take someone out athletically. Um, And I think it worked really well. I think it worked really well against Madrid. I think it worked really well against Southampton. Um, And and I think he balanced it beautifully, to be honest, Ruben himself. I think it is tough to play those double roles. Um, I think Reese also against Madrid did it, and Palace did an excellent. I think think Reese almost was so good that he enabled Ruben to be so good. And again, I don't think he can do... I don't think Ruben can play with as much freedom if he has Christensen behind him in that right centre-back role um, because Reese was just able to... We talked about when you sign players and forwards and you, elite players, you really want to be able to do the job of two men because if it becomes 1v1 across the pitch, then whoever's just going to... It's, it's very risky. 1v1 across the pitch leaves you in situations like the first leg where Benzema gets the better of Silva and Vinicius gets the better of Christensen and the game's gone. Um, whereas if you have someone like Reese, someone like Ruben, who can balance those dual roles really, really well, um, Vinicius didn't have a sniff in the second leg after after Reese got an early yellow. Vinicius didn't have a sniff, and it and he Reese was able to come inside support whilst marking in one v one. It was brilliant, and then having that security behind you then allows Ruben to go and be that extra extra man. Southampton was a perfect rehearsal because we had that extra uh, that early lead. And, and you kind of, he was able to almost treat the rest as a little training exercise and not be too worried about what was behind him. It was, it was great for the second leg. How much do you think, it, I, I know this is something that we touch on quite often for him, but again, kind of leaning into some of his comments, because I think, you know, watching back the, the Madrid game, I think, you know, as he kind of warmed into the game, you know, there are some very, I mean, there are obviously some incredible players who play for Madrid here, but it was almost like they had not seen somebody that big move that well with the ball. As you say, his ability to actually step into quite tricky areas to to do well in. And, you know, when you're kind of looking at players like Alexander-Arnold and Reese, who can step in from right wing back and play in midfield. And it kind of leads to obviously the course of them possibly switching positions. Um, how, you know, how, how difficult is it for, you know, teams like, let's say like Madrid, who maybe don't really, you know, it's more of a, a possession-based sort of style in Spain. It's more passing. How difficult is it to have, you know, guys, I suppose as well, of, of, of you know, Tony Crows and, and Luka Modric's age trying to deal with what is effectively, you know, Ruben getting very close to his, his kind of physical peak. How, how much does that sort of factor into the performances that you've seen, his physical level and the qualities that he's got, particularly when he's ball carrying? Massively. I mean, um, if, if I was to ask you to compare Ruben to a lot of people in terms of the balance and the physical and the technical, is that's and that's I think that's why you and me find it so hard to just when we thought we were out, we get pulled back in because <laughs> it is such a rare, rare skill set. Like there are really not many players who have, who are 6'3", able to protect the ball, who are rapid across 30, 40 yards, who are able to dribble in tight spaces, 
there's just not many. There's really not many. Like people still talk about him being uh, a Balak comparison or, or Pogba's one, I guess. Um, but you go back to a Balak comparison because they're they're so rare. Um, if you do have that size advantage that Ruben has to have the ability to dribble through tight spaces like him, I just I, I don't watch as much football outside of Chelsea and, and big European games as I used to be able to, but. I don't think the list is very long. And I think that's, it is, of course, really difficult to deal with. Um, even in the first leg when Ruben got sent on in the second half, um, it was a bit ropey, to be honest. I think it was a lot of loose touches and he didn't seem quite sure about whether he was being asked to drive or, or, or progress the ball with passing. But even when he got himself into tight situations, he managed to get out of them just through challenges or just through holding somebody off or just through recovering quickly. Um and I think that's why we, yeah, it's, it's that unique skill set and that blend of stuff is why we get so excited at the potential and why Tuchel clearly just hasn't let it go yet. Like even, it's easy to forget that in summer Ruben was being offered on loan apparently and wasn't really a likely candidate to stay. And now he's the most used sub off the bench um, and being trusted with a brand new role in a do or die Champions League game. So... Massively hard to to cope with. And I think that's where the, we talked about it in the last episode, but that's why where the Jorginho replacement is so interesting because while Jorginho brings some good things, he's never going to get past you. And if Ruben can add that kind of tempo set in passing range um, to the ability to just go past anyone at any given time like a Kovacic can, then yes, yeah, it's, it's a massively, massively difficult proposition to handle. If we move and look to the the Palace game, obviously, you know, Kovacic goes down injured. It looks like he's going to be out for quite a while, which is unfortunate because I think I've, I've certainly started to warm up to him this season. It's taken me a while, I would say, but I think he's probably probably our best midfielder, certainly at this point in, in the relative careers of everyone else. Um, but the game appeared quite flat. It, it felt quite one-dimensional. It felt like a very familiar performance that we've had a few times this season where... The, the sort of the, the team lacks dynamism, it lacks impetus, there's not real drive. Um, Ruben came on in a more familiar position. He came on in sort of a, a central midfield role. It looked like he was being asked to play quite high. He was asked to be be quite aggressive in terms of positioning. Um, but again, from that, I suppose, slightly more traditional role for him, um, you know, what was his impact on the game or how did the impact of the game? And again, how did sort of Tuchel deploy him to really, I suppose it, it kind of felt like he was one of the main reasons that Chelsea were able to get on the front foot against Palace, given how well they'd set up, how well they'd matched up in the first half. Yeah, I think Tuchel mentioned this as well. Um, I, I, I certainly haven't seen Palace play a 3-5-2 or a 5-3-2 as much this season if at all um they felt more like a 4-2-3-1 4-3-3 team all year and then when they lined up with that at, at Wembley I, I was there I was a bit confused I was like whoa okay um and first half I think where where Chelsea struggled with with Palace was they I mean they had a, a really narrow pressing box so I think after that first Madrid leg there's been a real noticeable, we'll talk about this when we talk about the legacy of that performance and what it might mean for us in the future, but there's been a noticeable shift um, that we're building with five or four a lot less often. We're really, really relying on that three to build and asking the wingbacks to be much higher and the midfielders to be higher and, and just trying to put the impetus on pinning people back more so than inviting the pressure. Um, Palace, I think 
confused Tuchel a little bit in that he wasn't expecting a flat five when we did get higher. So it was 4v5 in favour of them. Um, and what they had was they had uh, Matete and Zaha as a front two, and then they had Ize and Schlup. No, not... Yeah, Schlup um, as a box that were just all around Jorginho all the time, around Kovacic all the time, not letting anything come centrally from the back three. And you could see that first half that people had obviously been planning for a 4-3-3 the whole time, thought they'd get a bit more time in midfield, um, and Palace just didn't really offer it. And so I think second half, Ruben coming on, uh, Ruben sort of felt his way through the first half um, with, with the Kovacic injury and stuff. But second half, yeah, it was very much noted how high he was. He was basically in line with Mason Mount. Um, in ter- it was like two tens behind two strikers, really. I think it did two things. One, it obviously gave Palace um, more bodies right in front of their back line. So they, they naturally had to be more cautious and they tried a lot of long balls early. Weren't able to get the bodies forward once we started doing that. Really dominated the ball in that way and pinned them back into deep positions there. Also, I know he got a lot of criticism for the performance because there was two hairy moments where he lost the ball. Um, but having Ruben and Mace that high gave Jorginho a lot of space to work. And I think Jorginho was pretty important in um, wrestling control back and pushing Palace back incrementally with yards. Like the, the Ruben goal comes from two Jorginho through balls. One that doesn't go through to Werner. We win it with the counter-press. I think Ruben and somebody push the ball out to Tyreek Mitchell. Cesar, as Piliqueta wins it off Tyreek Mitchell. Goes back to Jorginho, slips Kai Havertz in. Um, and then he cuts it back or, he, or gets deflected back to Ruben, who, again, for someone we've talked about on the edge of the box, has indecision. He struck it well. Of course, it's deflected, but he got above it. And we see those things go flying over constantly. So, yeah, I think Ruben and Mason, having those guys as essentially two tens really, really pin Palace back. It's two horrible guys to have to mark in there yeah. because they are so good in tight spaces. And it just allowed Jorginho to have more influence and and just push Palace further, further, further back. So, so yeah, I think, again, it, he did come on and change the game, um, had a great counter opportunity that he slid Havertz in later on as well, in which he could have um, really consolidated the win if, if Havertz hadn't been pushed wide by the defence there. Um, so yeah, so it's it's just, I'll tell you what, it's been a good week for Ruben Loftus Cheek and his Chelsea prospects. That's all I'll say. We, when we mentioned him on the last episode, it was um, more just uh, interest of our own. But now I think it has come front and center of talking about who are the most informed Chelsea players. And again, I go back to July and August. And if you said that we would have had been having this conversation about Ruben Loftus-Cheek, I wouldn't have believed you. So we'll keep this one relatively short because, as you say, I think we'll, we'll talk about this in a lot more detail in the midfield section coming up. But if this is sort of the trajectory that he's on under Tuchel and, and he's shown a an ability to, to be adaptable, to play in a number of roles, to contribute and, and to maybe, again, it was particularly with the sort of the wing-back hybrid kind of stuff, um, maybe showing area of his game that not many people would have would have known about or even or really even thought that he was capable of. Going into next season, do you think you're more confident that he has a, a position in the squad? Um, and I guess I suppose maybe a slight follow-up on that would be if if he were to play for extended periods of time um, as a starter, how, how confident would you be in him being able to uh, kick on and I suppose sort of be a, an, an influential player from, from central areas? I think it goes back to me asking you. It all depends on whether he yeah. can reach those new levels, doesn't it? I mean, I, I was happy to keep him as a, as a role player, as a squad player this season. Um, 
especially considering how bad we seem to plan for midfield. I mean, we we record this now with Kovacic looking like he could miss a couple of weeks. Jorginho's um, not had a great season. Kante, um, there is maybe the fasting element and stuff, but he is not had a great season himself. Kante, like, I think it's a far cry from the guy who was a man of the match in every single Champions League knockout round last year. You know, like, I think he struggled in the first leg against Madrid. He was at fault for one, maybe two goals in the second leg. Um, it's, it's been tough for Kante. It's been tough for Jorginho. Kovacic has picked up another injury. It's one of several um, this season. Saul Neguez is not going to stay beyond this season. So the planning for midfield has been awful. Um, and we called that on before this was even called the Tinkerman, when we called it, a, <laughs> when we had this podcast name something, we're not longer name, allowed to name it for copyright reasons. We were concerned about the midfield makeup. So um, massive, massive opportunity grasped by Ruben. And I think when you hear Tuchel talk about him, he's so effusive in his praise and he knows that the potential is there. I think if he can stay fit, there's not a lot of mileage on the clock looking at those minutes relative to somebody like a Mason and um, and a Kovacic. Um, I think next season, I have, a, I have a funny thing about the World Cup next season. I think that's going to disrupt a lot of teams. Um, Liverpool, for example, have Diaz and Salah not going to the World Cup. That's going to be several weeks off for them in the middle of the season. I don't see Ruben cracking the England squad, so it will be good to have someone of his ability relatively fresh compared to someone like a Mount, Conor Gallagher, who might crack that squad. Um, so 100% I'd like to keep him. I'd like to extend him, to be honest, as well. I think I think at worst, he's a really, really interesting um, tactical option off the bench. He has quality, whether it's game-changing quality in a Champions League semi-final, quarter-final, okay, cool, but players like him don't grow on trees and they're really really um valuable so 100% I'd like to keep him around 100% I'd, I'd like to see him as involved as now but it all depends on whether he can add 5-10 goals to his game uh, get even better in the defensive phases get better at winning balls get better at um staying fit get better with the stamina in terms of being able to do this wingback role for 90 minutes or 120 minutes so um, there's still a lot of questions for him to answer and stuff, but I think with the potential that's there, with the low mileage in terms of his minutes played in, and with the way you hear Tuchel, you can tell when a manager likes working with players and when they're excited to work with a player and he speaks so highly of him um, that, you, you like you say, like you hope that Tuchel will put his time into him and try and try and improve him. Yeah, I think that probably is a very good time to bring part one to a conclusion. So when we come back, we'll be talking about the Bernabeu Blues. Uh, part three, we'll be looking at uh, Crystal Palace in a little bit more detail. Uh, part four, probably the bit that I'm looking forward to most. We're looking at this impending kind of midfield gap that we've created for ourselves and then finishing up with a little bit of any other business, which is going to take a, I suppose, a little bit of a deep dive into uh, Timo Werner. Um, also just generally how Tuchel sort of done this season as well maybe a little bit on Reese James who knows uh, and then finish up with the Tinker Men 10 but as usual before we head into the uh, ad break here I would like to thank the sponsors for financially sponsoring this show alright our next partner has a product that I use literally every day I started taking AG1 because well it's hard to get a lot of micronutrients in you know we're all focused on our macros with protein carbs and 
and fat. Now we got to add the micronutrients from fruits and vegetables. It's just hard to eat that many servings a day. So uh, I started doing it just to make my life a lot more efficient. I'm getting better gut health and a more uh, durable resistant immune system. So what is this stuff? Well, with one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food, sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging, all of the things. Again, I do it, it's easy, it's fast, it's quick. Uh, I throw up my shaker usually on my way home from work, drink it. It, it goes down quickly. Uh, and like I said, you get six servings of vegetables a day very easily. Uh, but hey, don't listen to me. Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews. It's recommended by professional athletes and is trusted by leading health experts such as Tim Ferriss and Michael Gervais. So right now it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills, supplements to look out for your gut health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to say, give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash London is blue. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash London is blue to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to part two of the Tinker Men. Part two, we're calling it the Bernabeu Blues. I suppose a little bit of a play on words there, and both that it was disappointing, but also maybe the uh, the roots of a, of a little bit of a blueprint for Tuchel in the future there. Uh, I'm once again joined by Yaz. We're going to talk through this. I think, again, as I say, very, very interesting um, performance, very interesting match from, from a Chelsea perspective. And I think... You know, watching this back in its entirety, which I don't often do in sort of very emotional, just kind of distressing uh, games, I kind of felt increasingly confident that this was probably one of the best Chelsea performances that I've seen, certainly in recent times. Um, you know, given, I suppose, I, 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 okay, let's frame it this way. In, given that the the first leg was was such, I think, disappointment, I think, you know, you've already alluded to in the, the sort of first section of the pod, you felt it was, you know, maybe Tuchel's kind of biggest mistakes in terms of, in terms of setup and maybe personnel and, and choices. Um, I think I'll, I'll throw it, I'll, I'll keep it quite open. What what was the biggest uh, change from, from the first leg to, to the second leg? Was it a, a question of energy? Was it team selection? Was it, was it more of a, a tactical framework? What was sort of the big, big sort of changing point? Because, they looked completely second, you know, uh, you know, second to pretty much everything the entire game. And it, it you know, it felt like a free one win in regulation was probably doing us a little bit of a disservice as well. Yeah. And to be honest, watching the first leg back, I, you, I did feel at the time it was undone by two moments of quality from Benzema um, and the Mendy mistake. I just knew the Mendy mistake. Like I, People asked me my prediction for the second leg before. And I said, we're going to win on the night but not going to go through. And I said, it, the Mendy mistake, you you don't get away with those against top, top final eight. Yeah. Uh, you just don't. Um, and then not only was the Mendy mistake, it was not putting away the Lukaku header in the first leg and stuff. So I felt like one goal was very doable. Two just felt, I just wasn't sure we were going to keep a clean sheet away. And we so nearly did that it's really frustrating because I wasn't expecting a performance of the quality that, that we put in at the Burnaby. Um, 
I, th- I think there's a there was a, a lot different to be honest. Um, so so feel free to stop me as I go through the no, list. I, okay. think, I think number one, like I, I mentioned on a previous episode, my I guess my equivalent of just when I thought I was out, he pulls me back in. Is I've thought Cesare Spilicueta has been done for so many different periods of his last three four years, um, and. And I, but I felt it was an interesting thing to note that our best performance, he wasn't on the pitch. Um, I think it did give way to Alonso, who, by the way, I think Alonso's had a really good season. As someone who's been massively Low-key, critical yeah. of him, um, Alonso was hard for Val. Like I mentioned it on the last part, but Alonso was really, really high, aggressively high, dangerously high. Um, and that, that really pinned Valverde back. Um, Rudiger was very aggressive. Reese James just took the Vinicius assignment in a way that Andreas Christensen just wasn't able to. Um, I think that was a really, really big turning point in the first leg, putting Christensen up against someone with the speed and agility to change direction like a Vinicius was, it didn't seem like a good decision on the night. It was proved to not be a good decision, um, much less to then not offer him the protection of an Aspilicueta to double up. Um, that seemed like a lot of mistrust um, uh, from Tuchel put into Christensen. So I think they were they were two massive differences. Alonso being on the left, being able to overlap, being a threat in behind, being a long ball threat. Um, Christensen coming out for Reese and Reese just being able to lock Vinicius down in the way that he did. Um, we'll talk about Reese towards the end of the pod, but I think the reaction from the Real Madrid players should be. Uh, impressive and concerning, I think, it, for us um, in terms of yeah. how much they Benzema wanting his shirt and Vinicius uh, commenting on his Instagram afterwards and stuff. That seemed like a little bit of a charm offensive there, and, and he did himself no, um, he didn't do himself any harm in terms of a scouting report there. Um, also, I think Georgie. I don't think Jorginho was very bad. I don't think he was poor in the first leg. Um, personally, I know he made like, as is the way with Twitter, there was one play where he took a while and he misplaced a pass that got went viral and stuff. But I don't think he was particularly poor. I think him and Kante, it's the first time I would argue that Kante's maybe ever been worse than Jorginho. So, but I, I do think having Kante and Kovacic in a game that needed pace, needed urgency, needed running around Modric and Kroos, I think that helped. I think one of the biggest things is, I think Timo over Pulisic. Pulisic was another one who I feel like let Tuchel down massively in the first leg. Um, I think he was really anonymous and and didn't get any change out of Carver Howe. Carver Howe is a not rapid 32-year-old fullback. If you're Christian Pulisic, you need to be able to win that match up 1v1 and it just he just felt anonymous. And then lastly, I think there's been a noticeable shift in Mason Mount's role. And um, I know you mentioned it after the Southampton win. Um, I haven't received my royalties for the connector thing yet. That's fine. That's cool. It's all right. We'll Are we putting it into Football Manager for next season though? We, we, we have connections. So is it going to go into Football Manager next season? I don't know. Season? I'll have to have a word with Elliot. Maybe I can get it in the description. I don't know. I'm sure that those genius nerds have already got something better than, than connector though. Um, but if you, you, you notice Mount, like, and this is a funny thing about Mount. Mount has uh, Mount, I think, is very underrated by non-Chelsea fans. They don't see the intangible stuff, the intrinsic stuff, the little stuff that makes us a much better team with him in the side. 
And I, one of the things I haven't loved about Tuchel's selections is his choice of Mount being the right-sided player of the front three and be basically spamming crosses a lot of the time and and um, doing underlaps to open up things for Reese and Pulisic and stuff. I haven't loved his use of Mount. Last few games after Brentford, Madrid at home. Madrid at home a little bit, but Madrid away and, and Southampton, it's been very much a, a 3-4-1-2. And, and Mount being that one and him having total creative freedom to go and connect on the left, go and connect on the right, know when the right time and area to press from is. Um, you can, I'm sure it's there on like the average position of him in a game, but it's also just the things he gets through, the, the runs in behind. He comes deep and it allows Kante to get in behind him from the space that he's vacated. It allows Timo and Kai to basically be a front two or split strikers or whatever you want to call it, which I think they're they're very comfy with, but it also allows Timo to, to drift out left and come inside and be a threat in behind. So I think there's a lot there. I think playing a proper left wing back, I think it was a bit scared from Tuchel to play Aspi on the left. And I think that backfired. Playing a proper left wing back as high as he did. Having Reese be able to manage that matchup against Vinicius was massive. Kovacic over Jorginho um, was was probably the better call. And Werner over Pulisic is probably the better call. Um, but Mount coming into that more central role, as well as Ruben being able to come and, and create that overload in there. I think it was just there's like five or six massive decisions which were really really brave and right in the second leg i guess the argument could be that you would have wanted them in the first leg one thing while you were talking about uh, mason there uh yeah i think i think people continue kind of overlooked his his age yes i think you know you, you mentioned earlier certainly in part one of this when we were talking about reuben that just the sheer volume of minutes that mason has actually played for somebody you know so young in terms of his professional career um but I think the thing that I, I want to touch on here is he might be one of the more sort of, I suppose, the, the well, let's say the, the better uh, defensive or, or kind of dif- like in, like his defensive intelligence for somebody his age in those positions, when to press, how to press, the angles that he takes. I feel like when he plays with that energy that we saw against Madrid, you know, they were having to essentially put together like one touch FIFA kind of level combinations of passing um, to sort of beat that press. And I think that that really... In terms of the the counter pressing structure, the 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 press being led by Mason, his energy, his intelligence when it comes to picking those those angles, when to press, and, and just the amount of pressure he can apply during a game, I think that that's a really kind of transformative aspect of, of his game to me. So I mean, w- what have you made of, of of Mason's kind of? I suppose I think as you're saying is correct. It feels like he's been asked to be more of a goals and assists kind of player this season, you know, like more end product, I suppose, would be the way of framing it. But that's kind of sacrificed a lot of the qualities that you get from him by playing him 10, 15 yards deeper. Um, sort of going forward in terms of in terms of his you know, kind of future in, in a system like this or something similar, how how important is he or, or possibly maybe looking at a Gallagher or something like how important is that energy, that pressing that, that you think is, is really letting us as, as be aggressive and be on the front foot in big games, because it felt like certainly for the majority of the game, Madrid just couldn't, couldn't, you know, live with the, the kind of relentless energy and, and pressing that we had. And a lot of that seems to come from Mason Mount. Yeah. I think he, I think, I think even Jody Morris talked about it and this is when he was part of the first team. And that's talking three years ago now when he was 20 years old like he just a lot of high high level decision making is not really decision making a lot of high high level split second stuff is 
not coached, it's learned, if that makes sense. It's it's not explicitly go here then when this happens because there's not time to make those explicit decisions all the time. I, sometimes there is, of course. I think certain positions you're able to get away with it a bit more. Like strikers spend most of their game uh, off the ball, watching the defenders around them, predicting when the ball's going to come in, moving, everything like that. In the engine room, in the, in the chaos of midfield, like... I don't think there is the time to make explicit decisions. And so I think when you have a player like Mason Mount, yes, it's energy, but it's just a knack. And it's just one of those uncoachable, unbottleable, un, un, unreplicable things that certain players have and certain players don't. And it's that whole right, right place, right time or right decision all the time and stuff like that. Um, they're very hard things to categorise and to bottle and be able to just give another player. And that's where maybe my concern is for someone like a Ruben is that he's just not that guy on the edge of the box, right? Um, Mason is very much that guy. And I think when you take him away from where the game is won and lost and where the game happens, I just feel like it's doing the team a disservice. Um, so yes, like, like you said, it's energy. But I think that's where he gets the bad rap is people, it is energy, but people... Just they a, think he's a roadrunner. They just think he's a roadrunner and it's just energy. Yeah. But it's it's not it's not just that he, he presses the right angle, he presses the right time, he's able to press and not lose attention on where the ball is while asking Kovacic to come and support him. And and it's when he gets it as well. Like it's not like he's just the off the ball terrier destroyer. Like he he links play better than anybody else in the squad, in my opinion. He is able to make the right pass in tight spaces better than pretty much anyone else in the squad, in my opinion. Um Finishing could do with work, but like you said, he's just turned twenty three, maybe like two months ago. So um, I think I think it is partly yeah, all to do with Mason, and and he deserves credit for it. But like we talked to him with with um, part one, I think it was it was tactical as well. It was on Tuchel as well. Having Ruben be able to come in and and be a, an auxiliary midfielder, an extra midfielder, and having Mace be deeper than the front three and be in there, all of a sudden now your two bodies against them in the first leg which was very easy to just ping out to Kroos in his sort of painted little left-back area so he can play it through, or Casemiro could play a diag through. All of a sudden now there's six yellow bodies in there, um, especially with Rudiger being as aggressive as he was and coming into midfield as well. So I think it's, um, I think it is, I think Mason definitely leads that, uh, but we were so much better at plugging it in the second leg, just tactically in terms of what zones we had people in. Um, and we played into their hands a little. We were very yeah. flat, um, and a lot of the bodies were in the back line um, in the first leg. A, a lot of the bodies were in the back five or the back four, whereas in the second leg, there was three at the back pretty much the entire game. The entire back line for most of that game was Reese, Silva, Rudiger. Um, everybody else was packed in midfield, and, and I think that kind of leads us to the bit that you want to talk about in terms of what, Chelsea could look like moving forward. I think it was there against Southampton. It was there in the second half against Palace. It was there against Madrid. And there's that old phrase is like, fortune favours the brave and stuff like that. And you create your own luck. And I'm a massive Thomas Tuchel fan. I think he's done amazing stuff. I think it's easy to forget that the only permanent member, the only player he signed, if you want to say he has signed, is Lukaku. And then I don't know... It, whether he wanted him or not, it definitely hasn't worked. So he's still got a squad that isn't really his squad. Um, and I think 
that is maybe the benefit of the doubt I'm willing to give on some of the football not being the most exhilarating and some of the football being safety first, rest defence, bodies behind the ball. But I think the second leg in Madrid and some of the games against Liverpool and and Southampton and Palace second half, I just do, it does make me think, okay, now let's take the handbrake off. Let's get more of those bodies forward. I think we're, we're rest, reticent and a bit aversive of getting bodies forward and in the box and risking. And, and I think the second leg in Madrid, you can't understate the psychological factor. If that was a Saturday, three o'clock at Newcastle, we're not going to play with the same hunger. We're not going to play in the same way. You can't take the second leg context away from the first. We knew we had to go and get three goals. Um, we knew we had to go and be on the front foot. That's going to obviously have an impact. That's going to obviously make people track back more. That's obviously going to be... But it, it is a, a clue as to what this squad could look like. Um, I do go back to what I said about that 2-2 against Liverpool that was exhilarating, but we conceded a lot of chances on the break. Maybe it's not the way you win a title. You look at City. City are boring to watch 65% of the time because control and, and you know, um, keeping clean sheets is, is what yeah. wins leagues. But I think fully fit, fully healthy players like Reese James, players like a motivated on it Antonio Rudiger, players like... Uh, a motivated on it Kovacic players like a Mason Mount players like a Ruben Loftus-Cheek doing that dual role you can trust them you can get them forward you can put bodies forward you can commit more guys and the counter pressing I think is a big part of that and that's where Liverpool are so good and City is so good at being able to put bodies forward and not get sucked on the counter um and maybe it's just a trust thing. Maybe we see moving forward that Tuchel trust this squad now a bit more, having seen the Madrid performance, having seen that he can throw a bit more caution into the wind. Like we we put crosses in with one person in the eighteen yard box and stuff. Just pure probability you're not going to get onto the end of that, right? Um, and yeah, I just I just would like to see this more. Um, would like to see the making your own luck and. And, and fortune favouring the brave more. And for me, that bravery is putting more players ahead of the ball. Um, but then that comes with, you need the quality behind the ball. You need to be able to believe that three or four players are going to be able to do the defending all on this, all on their own. I think I've, I've got a sort of final one or two questions here. And this may be, again, something that you can expand on in, in detail because I think it's, it's a really interesting point you make about certainly you know, this type of uh, performance we saw against Madrid, it's not a one-off this season. We've seen particularly against Liverpool, um, you know, I think there are other games as well that, that come to mind, where we play at that, um, I suppose, dynamic is the word I'm looking for. When we play in a dynamic style, when we move the ball quickly, when we play with pace and energy, um, we have the ability to to really, you know, hurt a lot of teams in Europe, as we saw with Real Madrid, as we've seen with Liverpool, you know, we, we can damage teams. Um there is, I think, again, to your point there, there is a little bit maybe in terms of the, the risk reward where we are conceding a lot more chances. So there's, there's probably two questions to follow up on that. In in terms of finding a happy medium or in terms of finding a balance, what, what does that look like in your head? And is that a personnel or is that more of a tactical um, sort of solution to that? Are we looking at slightly different players to help bring the balance or is it a little bit more of a tactical tweak? Um, I, think, I think it is a bit of both. I think... I would like to see over a prolonged period us playing with... I find this Ruben role could be a really interesting one for Reese James, to be honest. 
Um, but we'll get onto that in the Tinkerman 10 because I'm, I've got a few questions for Rich about Rich. Um, <laughs> but I, I think I think one that won't be popular, and I already got cooked a little bit on Twitter for this one, I think you will struggle to... I don't think he's bad. I don't think he needs replacing. But if you look at the peers and how much more uh, risky they are at the back in terms of City and Liverpool... I think compared to Edison and Allison, Mendy is far less comfortable with his feet. He is. Um, there was a really interesting viz put up recently. Actually, we our 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 back line is comparable in height with both of theirs, but we immediately drop. We don't allow Mendy to come out and sweep like they do. Um, their two guys. Also interesting as well that, okay, the Mendy clangor is obviously a mishit. You don't want to read too much into one erroneous moment, but um, he doesn't have to get involved in build-up with a back three. There's three guys across the width of the six-yard box who can all take the ball there. Immediately, if we go to a back four or something like against Madrid, where Reese is sort of in between a right-back and a right-centre-back and a, everything like that, Mendy all of a sudden needs to come out outside of the 18-yard box and be involved mm. in the build-up a lot more. And it's just, I, I like Mendy, but it's not his game. And so I think to be a really daring, high-risk team, I think that would be something that maybe would have to be phased in over the next year or two. Um, it's not something I'm clamouring for. I like Mendy. I love his story. I think he's ledge. Um, I don't think he's maybe the top, top, top tier of goalkeeper. Um, I don't think he's like a peak pet a check goalkeeper um i don't personally think he's really an allison goalkeeper but i think he's very good and he's very serviceable um but i think that would be one like i think we underestimate how um off the hook mendy gets in terms of build-up because he has more bodies around him i think the tiago silva thing i think has been massively overplayed that he can't play in a back four but with every oh, definitely yeah yeah but with every passing season that maybe becomes a little bit more true he'll be 38 i think at the beginning of the next season um, obviously keeps himself in great nick but you know rudiger the the rudiger we see under tuchel the three allows him to be so aggressive again he got away with it against madrid but there'd probably be a few more lampard-esque moments where he doesn't so i think i think it, personnel could be better um but I think a lot of it comes with just how good the counter-pressing is and getting the right players in midfield and the right players in, in in the central areas. I think as well, it's easy for teams to take the gamble of, I will sit off against Chelsea because Pulisic, Werner, Ziyech, Hudson-Odoi, Lukaku, Havertz don't worry us the same way. Amane, Salah, Mares, um, De Bruyne, Silva, people, Mbappe do that they, they the fear factor isn't there so then that gives teams a little bit more resilience when they're sitting off it gives them a little more bravery when they want to counter and stuff like that so i think and this is maybe when we talk about the midfield i think the squad needs a lot of work um we have a mishmash squad of about four or five different managers the age profiles and the contracts are all over the place um i don't think mendy is a keeper you sign if you are wanting to be that high risk high pressing team um midfield we're going to talk about but to play this counter-pressing win things in midfield game we're going to need a very new midfield um so that probably dovetails nicely into into the next section but i think it is a balance um and i think Tuchel is doing the best balance of 
risk and reward that he sees as suitable with these players. And he sees them every day. That is the other thing people... Like we see them for 90 minutes a week. He sees them for 90-minute sessions every other day or every day. So he sees them five, six times as much as what we do. He's on the pitch. He knows what they're able to do. He knows what they're capable of. He knows what they've come to him and said, I'm not comfortable when this happens in a game. Can you help me with that? Um, so I... I think he got a lot more pragmatic in his PSG reign and stuff, but I do think Tuchel, and I know he likes to dominate with the ball. I don't think he's a transition fan like Klopp is, but I do think he's a football fan and I do think he likes exciting football and stuff like that. So I do think with the right personnel, he maybe would take a few more risks. I hope anyway, because obviously I watch it for entertainment like you do um, and only want the best balance of, of being successful and being entertained really which I definitely was not in the first half against Brentford and Palace. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good point. Um, I think I'll, I'll echo that. And, and in terms of, you know, the... In fact, this is probably going to be in the sort of the other business section here, but uh, maybe a very small point before we move on to, on to part three after the, the ads that are coming up here. But I think the way that Tuchel has managed this season, as, as you know... Yaz and I have probably been leading the charge on on sort of the, the construction of the squad and how it's very difficult to play like a single style of player or at least have a, a single framework that different players can kind of tap into and how many times you've really kind of changed um, sort of tactics this season, how many times sort of the system has, has changed, obviously in terms of the personnel, how that has kind of fluctuated through the season. I think how he has um, managed certainly the, the past couple of weeks given the the I suppose maybe the the kind of the kick up the arse the players they needed against Brentford how that has kind of you know transitioned into some of our better performances you know absolutely obliterated Southampton in what felt like second gear maybe touching third gear at times um you know blue really blew Real Madrid away given given how good they are obviously you know to, to Yazzie's point felt like a win maybe you know a win was 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 doable but certainly not the the performance level that 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 that, that, that sorry not the performance level that that came with um and then the second half against Palace again was was just Chelsea going up a uh, a gear gear and a half against Palace and them not really being able to deliver. So I think he's done such an incredible job. And you know when we're looking at the the summer and and certainly obviously with the the uh, rather large elephant in the room of the ownership situation still not being resolved, therefore you know not being able to to really tap into a, a recruitment strategy or, or figure that sort of portion of, of what's going to happen. Um, you know, I completely agree with Yaz. We are going to need investment, certainly in midfield, if we want to try and play something approaching that sort of Real Madrid uh, style of play, whether it's, say, it's a little bit more balanced, whether you, you're factoring in um, teams being maybe a lot more defensive-minded, you know, the, the the sort of typical five or even six at times across the width of the penalty area, you know, another bank of five in front, whatever it might be. Um, you know, I think we're, we're going to have to figure that out again, probably in, in terms of how that is 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 dealt with with, with, with sort of selections here. Um but yeah, I think I think that there is there is something here, and I think we've got the the foundation. Certainly, you know, keep mentioning them, guys like Reese, guys like Mason, um, even sort of Ruben's kind of resurgence. Tony Rudiger, if they can keep hold of him, they have a a real kind of core of players that can play, in my opinion, a, a style of football that can win Premier League titles. Um, I think it's just been a question of of how we recruit, how we maybe integrate some of the the youngsters coming back in, um, how that sort of looks over the next one to two seasons. But uh, yeah. 
that I think that probably bring the end of end of uh, yeah part two to a close here. Um, in terms of what's up next, we've got part three. It's going to be, I suppose, a little bit of a whistle-stop tour of the Palace game. A um, few interesting things, certainly second half when it came to, to maybe some, some player deployments. Um, but then probably getting into part four, which would be maybe a bit more of a chunkier section looking at midfield. Um, part five, any other business. And I think that's going to be touching a little bit on Timo Werner and maybe an early assessment on, on Thomas Tuchel. And then finishing up with part six with the Tinkerman 10. So as usual, thank you to the sponsors for financially contributing to the show. And we will see you guys in part three. Look, guys, it's Editor JK to break some news. That's the end of episode one. But, but, hear me out. We have an episode two of the Tinkerman and this month an episode three of the Tinkerman. So if you're somebody who likes a weekend release of the podcast, say a Saturday release and a Sunday release, we have fantastic news Maybe you're going to get your chores done while listening to the Tinkerman this weekend. So we'll see you tomorrow, and we'll see you the day after with some more Joe Tweeds and Yaz. But until then, keep the blue flag flying high.